your car can be hacked. The Department of Justice will no longer prosecute good hackers. India is really moving into a non-privacy respecting direction and lots of updates to the free and open source software world. Welcome to Surveillance Report 89, where we are dedicated to keeping you private and secure with the latest news from the past week. I am Nathan from The New Oil. And I'm Henry from TechLore. This week, first off, we want to thank you guys who have supported us via Monero. Thank you so much. We see all of the donations. Obviously, Monero is anonymous. We don't know who you are, but we saw a huge spike in donations this last week, and that really means a lot to us. Thank you guys so much for supporting. We do see the support. Thank you again. And Monero is it's a great way to support us. That's one way. And the other way we have is Patreon, which is recurring, and you get all kinds of cool perks, like you get a show notes, so you can just kind of see the highlights of the episode each week. You get the chance to ask a Q&A and we'll answer some of the questions at the end of the episode and stuff like that. So whatever you choose to do, thank you so much. Your support is noted and appreciated. Thank you, guys. And the highlight story this week. So hackers can steal your Tesla Model 3 and Model Y using a new Bluetooth attack. And we're gonna tie this into other new cars as well. So just on the Tesla side of things, in this relay attack, an adversary intercepts and can manipulate the communication between two parties, like the key fob that unlocks and operates the car and the vehicle itself. Pushing out fixes for the security problem is complicated, and even if the response is immediate and coordinated, it would still take a long time for the updates to trickle down to impacted products. Technical details have not been published. Right now, the advisory is for Tesla drivers to enable pin to drive, which essentially every time you go in your car, not only do you have to have the fob on you, but you also have to type in a pin like on your phone. And for everyone else to simply be mindful and try to avoid Bluetooth for valuables if you can. One interesting note, the fobs, at least for the three and the Y, didn't used to have Bluetooth capabilities. So that is actually on the newer fobs, I think released after 2019. So I wonder if the old fobs are affected by that issue. The cool thing about this story is Tesla has a huge spotlight on them, being such a big and new company, and every year these contests are run to catch issues like this. Like sometimes they'll actually have contests where uh, if you hack a Tesla, you get to keep the Tesla, which is pretty nifty. Sadly, other cars don't get the same spotlight, so my concern is these similar attacks are still possible on other newer cars as well. Just generally speaking, as cars get more digital and advanced, we're inevitably going to have some scary stuff happen on the road. I also wanted to highlight, because I know we're going to get a few of you who say, this is why I just drive a 1970 BMW. That's not a solution to this issue. Not only will you eventually have to have a car probably built with this technology in it, even if it's four decades from now, but newsflash, the cars around you on the road also impact you. So their safety also keeps you safe. So this is a big issue that affects a lot of people, and it's something to just to keep tabs on in the privacy and security world. With that, we're going to go into our data breaches this week, and we're going to start off with Parker Hannafin, who has revealed a cyber attack exposing sensitive employee data. Parker Hannafin is a Fortune 500 engineering giant. This breach affects current and former employees and dependents and took place between March 11th and 14th. This included names, social security numbers, date of birth, home address, driver's license numbers, passport numbers, bank account and routing numbers, online login credentials, and health insurance, plan member ID numbers, and dates of coverage. Once again, information that more or less an employee is totally right to have, your social and your date of birth, home address, I always recommend using a PO box. I've never had an employee have an issue with that. Still, there's only so much you can hide from them, and this really sucks. Our next one comes from Texas, where 1.8 million residents' data was exposed for almost three years. I'm going to quote the article. The personal information of 1.8 million Texas residents who filed insurance claims with the Texas Department of Insurance was exposed and publicly accessible for almost three years, according to a recently published state audit. Unquote. 
This appears to apply to the workers' compensation claims from March 2019 to January 2022. This includes names, addresses, dates of birth, phone numbers, social security numbers, and details of their claims. The department said in an updated post that a forensics investigation could not conclusively rule out that certain information on the web application was accessed outside of the Department of Insurance. So, in other words, we can't promise that nobody else accessed this information, which in my opinion should always just be your default assumption anyways. Freeze your credit. I, I guess that's the best we got here. Up next, a ransomware attack has exposed data of 500,000 Chicago students. The Chicago public schools have suffered a data breach that exposed the data of 500,000 students and 60,000 employees after their vendor, Battelle for Kids, suffered a ransomware attack in December. This Ohio-based company is a not-for-profit educational organization that analyzes student data shared by public school systems to design instructional models and evaluate teacher performances. They say they work with 267 school systems and its programs have reached over 2.8 million students. This includes names, date of births, gender, grade level, school, Chicago public school student ID numbers, state student ID numbers, course information, and student scores from 2015 to 2019. These attacks are getting more and more common where children, again, the children who are we're always trying to keep safe uh, by, you know, doing things like trying to ban end-to-end -end encryption are victim of these attacks where all of their information is exposed to the world, essentially doxing these children. So. There's that issue, and I think that's pretty self-explanatory that we're against. All right, with that, we'll move into our company stories, and we only have one story this week. Plaid officially expands into identity and income verification, fraud prevention, and account funding. So this announcement comes two weeks after Stripe announced a very similar thing, and I mean, that's kind of the whole story. I think we're gonna see a lot more of this. Financial services are gonna become more and more privacy invasive, and I know we talk about this a lot. A lot of people out there, assume that this is always about data. This is this is always about knowing more about you. I really think that it's probably about trying to stop fraud. Nobody wants to lose money. And so they're trying to stop fraud. And just as a side effect, they happen to be collecting a ton of data that I'm sure they will monetize and eventually breach in a data breach. And we'll talk about them at the top of the show in a year or two. But for the record, that's not me standing up for Plaid. I know they recently had a class action settlement that had something to do with data. I don't remember the exact details. But my point is like, this is going to become more common. Everybody's trying to stop fraud. Everybody's trying to not lose money. Just be aware of that, I guess. That's where we're headed. Migrating over to research. So MIT Harvard scientists found that AI can recognize race from x-rays, and they don't really know how. The study found that an artificial intelligence program trained to read x-rays and CT scans could predict a person's race with 90% accuracy. But the scientists who conducted the study say they have no idea how the computer figures it out. The research effort was born when a scientist noticed that an AI program for examining chest x-rays was more likely to miss signs of illness in black patients. They asked themselves, how can that be if computers cannot tell the race of a person? The research raises the unsettling prospect that AI-based diagnostic systems could unintentionally generate racially biased results. Their colleagues remain baffled, but they suspect it has something to do with melanin, the pigment that determines skin color. The x-rays and CT scanners detect the higher melanin content of darker skin and embed this information in a digital image in some fashion that human users have never noticed before. They're still researching this to figure out if that's the case. So this is a privacy concern as it's a new way of discrimination and data gathering. I know some people say that how can computers be racially biased? This is exactly how. And also, I think this also demonstrates how sometimes AI and computers actually understand things better than humans can. And we're starting to see this happen more often where we don't even understand why things work sometimes. So I think that there is starting to be a little bit of a of a fork in the road with with computers and humans and the things we're able to understand, which take that as you will. 
All right, that brings us to our politics section. We're kind of blowing through these, but we're, we're going to have a lot of false stories, so hang in there. We're going to start with some good news. The Department of Justice says they will no longer prosecute good faith hackers under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Quoting the article, the U.S. Justice Department announced Thursday it would not bring charges under federal hacking laws against security researchers and hackers who act in good faith. Unquote. Prior to this decision, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which is from 1986, so that should tell you how uh, relevant it is to modern computers, has been abused to sue pretty much anyone who does anything with a computer that the company didn't like. That's not really... An exaggeration. Up to and including security researchers responsibly disclosing vulnerabilities. Like, I've actually heard a lot of people say they don't report vulnerabilities anymore because every time they do, the company's just like, oh, we're going to sue you under the CFAA. And it's like, I... Sure, whatever, bro. So they just stop reporting it because it's not worth the trouble anymore. So the Justice Department said that good faith researchers are those who, quote, carry out their activity in a manner designed to avoid any harm to individuals or the public, unquote, and where the information is used primarily to, again, quote, promote the security or safety of the class of devices, machines, or online services to which the access computer belongs or to those who use such devices, machines, or online services, unquote. This does come with some problems with the wording, as any law really, really does. The article points out that this policy shift is not legislative. It's an interpretation. The Department of Justice could change their minds in the future. It also does not protect anyone from state-level hacking laws. So, uh, for example, the first thing that came to my mind was the reporter in, I believe it was Missouri, who looked at, he was on a government website and for some reason he checked the source code and saw that there were like social security numbers embedded and when he reported it, the governor accused him of hacking and said he was going to sue him. It wouldn't protect that guy. And also the EFF pointed out that the policy may not apply to researchers who ask for compensation or ask to be, you know, recognized in the, the change logs because at that point, now they're not doing it altruistically out of the good of their heart, even though they might be like a professional security researcher. That might be how they make their living. And also personally, I come from a, a background of like, it never hurts to ask. But then as soon as they ask, now they lose that protection because now they're not doing it just to be a good citizen. So that is kind of crappy. But overall, I, I think this is a huge step forward in the right direction. And I think it's a good thing. And hopefully we'll see this trickle down to the states too and become a little bit more formal because... Like I said, there's a lot of vulnerabilities out there that don't get reported because people just don't want to deal with the headache of getting threatened for doing the right thing. So this is a step forward for sure. Transitioning to Spain, who has slapped Google for frustrating the EU's right to be forgotten. Google has been hit with a 10 million euro fine by Spain for serious breaches of the European Union's General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, which found it had past information that could be used to identify citizens requesting deletion of their personal data under EU law, including their email address, the reasons given, and the URL claimed, to a US-based third party without a valid legal basis for this further processing. As well as being fined, Google has been ordered to amend its procedures to bring them into compliance with the GDPR and to delete any personal data it still holds related to this enforcement. This is only Google's second time being fined for a GDPR violation. The first was in France several years ago. Google has, however, been fined under e-privacy rules. A Google spokesperson said they are assessing the regulator's decision, and the company claimed it's already taken steps to amend its process. Again, another good reminder that sometimes regulation works. With that, we're going to move to India, where we have yet another update on this whole VPN situation. For those who are just joining us, basically, India has now required all VPNs, commercial VPNs. So like Nord, Proton, 
IVPN, they would have to log user data, not necessarily the traffic, but the information about the subscriber. Unfortunately, it's not a good update. India is doubling down. They have basically said to other VPN providers that if you're not going to comply with this law, then get out. Rajiv Chandrasekhar, the junior IT minister of India, said that VPN providers who wish to conceal who uses their services will have to pull out. He also said that there won't be any public consultation on the rules. The new rules, which were unveiled last month and go into effect later next month in June, won't be applicable to corporate and enterprise VPNs, which I guess doesn't really surprise me because those are the ones where like you work from home and you use a VPN to get into the system and do your work. It's a security thing. It's not really a privacy thing. So not surprising that doesn't apply. Yeah, that's that's really it. And India hit again. Coming soon, caller's name as per KYC or know your customer record to flash on phone screen. Weird headline, but pretty much what this is, is the Department of Telecommunications or the DOT will come soon with a mechanism which would enable a caller's name to flash on the screen when someone calls. The name would be as per the know your customer record of subscribers with the telecom operators. KYC is essentially identity verification for services like this, so there's really no way to call someone without them knowing exactly who you are, which obviously poses many privacy concerns. India's kind of moving in a nasty direction these last few weeks. Isn't that interesting how the privacy erodes? Originally, it was like KYC, like we we just want to know who you are. That's fine. Nobody else has to. And now it's like, no, we're going to let everybody know who you are. Like. It's that slippery slope, man. It's the slippery slope and also it's taking the easy route. My guess is the reason why they're doing this is to prevent spam, right? Probably. Because that way they can verify every phone number, but it comes at the cost of like massive privacy implications. So trying to find better solutions for things that aren't the easy solution that invades on human rights is typically like the harder way to go that we just don't tend to like explore. All right, with that, we will move into the free and open source news or FOSS. And we're going to start with Firefox, who has debuted improved process isolation to reduce browser attack surface. This begins in Firefox 100, which was released May 3rd into the stable channel. So in other words, as long as you're staying updated, you should be good. I'm going to quote the article. When users browse the web through Firefox, the software renders content into separate processes isolated from the operating system and managed by a single privileged parent process. The reasoning behind this model is that if a bug exists in a content process, the potential attack vectors are limited, unquote. Basically, they just took that principle and expanded on it by restricting access to Win32K Sys, a historically abused process. This included a massive redesign behind the scenes. So as an end user, you're probably not going to see any difference, but you're going to be a lot safer. And as always, if you want more details, feel free to read the article. They have a lot more technical detail, but I will leave you with this quote. While this security update has primarily focused on Windows machines, macOS and Linux were not forgotten. A quiet change was introduced for Mac in Firefox 95 that blocked access to the Windows server, improving process startup by 30 to 70% and bumping up security. In Linux, the link between content processes and the X11 server was broken in Firefox 99. So this mainly applies to Windows, but everybody is benefiting. Up next from Proton, what to expect from the updated Proton. Starting this week, Proton will begin rolling out their changes that will unify all their products under a revamped ecosystem. According to them, these changes are essential for them to address a number of long-standing community requests, like YubiKey support. Your ProtonMail.com email address will remain valid and unchanged, and the website will become Proton.me, except ProtonVPN.com, which they say will be unchanged, um, but it will still get new branding. Plans will include more storage, and Drive and Calendar will now be standard in all paid plans. I'm personally excited to see this. The CEO of Proton, Andy Yen, did an AMA on Reddit not too long ago, and the main question I asked, which he responded to, was, 
why the hell is there no unified ecosystem here? Why is Proton Calendar not integrated in the Proton Mail app? And if it is a separate app, how come it's only on Android and not on iOS? How come every product that you guys offer has a different app situation on every single platform? And pretty much he said that they switched over to just do pretty much finishing things right when it's done. They're not waiting for the other services to be done and doing it in a polished way. So hopefully this announcement means that we'll start to see a little bit more integration between all their services because that's my biggest complaint with Proton right now. That was all personal stuff, if you guys couldn't tell. Up next, Fair Email developer calls it quits and pulls apps from Google Play. The developer of the open source email client, Fair Email, pulled all of his applications from Google Play and announced that he would stop development. It was a privacy-friendly email client, really popular in the open source world. Earlier that week, the dev received a policy violation email from Google stating that Google believed the Fair Email application was spyware. After trying to fix it, he decided to pull the application and all of his other applications from the Play Store, and the apps won't be maintained and supported anymore, according to him. Quick note, just to add on to that, I think this is the same guy. NetGuard was also pulled, and I think that was one of his other applications. I don't hear people talking about that one as much, but that's also really important because I know that's also very popular for Android users in the privacy community. Well, aside from just the Google thing, the other factors that played a role in his decision included the discrepancy between answering thousands of support questions per month and the application's revenue, as well as the inability to do something against unfair reviews in the Google Play Store. He considered keeping the applications on GitHub, but this would result in a 98% loss of audience, which makes sense since people aren't going to manually download APKs on GitHub. The GitHub repos are still available, but they are archived. As of right now, the best recommendation is K9 for uh, people still needing an email client on Android. I had a couple takeaways for this. First, not enough money is thrown at open source projects. If you are reliant on several open source projects, which my guess is many of you are who listen to this podcast, and you have the ability to even pitch in a dollar a month to a single one of them, and you aren't, you should get on that. Even a dollar makes a big difference when we're talking about hundreds of users. These projects typically are developed for free, a lot of times by just one person. And there's a good reason why over on the Techler side of things, we'll donate about 5% of our total profits to these different projects because it's a way that we can contribute. But we don't contribute in the scheme of things that much. So it's more important if we have more people like you just donating a dollar a month. That makes a bigger difference than anything us two can do outside telling you to donate. The second thing, the Google Play Store is generally a royal pain in the ass for developers and locks people into this walled garden. If you don't play into the Google Play Store where Google can unfairly shut your app down for any reason, which they've now also done with the Element Matrix client, the Messenger Briar, the Monero.com wallet, and dozens more, and even recently Google has been ceasing security updates for Russian users. So the centralization is bad news and makes good developers like this one second guess the software they create, which is not good. So it's just something to think about. I definitely want to second the uh, supporting the things you like. I, I come from a musician background and like, oh man, I, I'm not going to rant on it, but I've, I've literally seen, I used to manage bands and I've seen people leave comments. They're like, oh my God, you guys are amazing. You're going to be so successful. You're going to go so far. And it's like, as the band manager, I also saw the sales stats and the merch. And it's like, I don't know how they're going to go anywhere when you guys aren't buying CDs, aren't buying shirts, aren't going to shows and like, it, you, you guys, it goes for everything, not just technology. Like you've got to support the things you love. Any project, if you want to see it go long-term, we know you've only got so much money, but man, pick like the top five or like, uh, like rotate, like this month, give money to this project. Next month, give it to another project. Seriously, support the things you love. It doesn't take much either. We made a video on TechLore that's like, hey, if all our subscribers 
donate just a dollar a month to just a single project, like every year you inject millions of dollars in the open source community. Granted, I, I realize that not everyone who visits my website is a fan, but like if every hit that I got gave $1, I could easily quit my day job and do this full time and make more money than I made in my day job. It adds up. We're serious when we say every dollar helps because every person that gives a dollar adds up, man. Mm -hmm. Seriously. Don't feel like you got to drop $100, like $5, $10, $1, it adds up. Okay, I'll get off my soapbox. Up next, we do have some good news. HP has chosen the Ubuntu-based Pop! OS Linux for its upcoming Dev1 laptop. System76's CEO Carl Richelle shared on Twitter that this is absolutely happening, a 14-inch developer-focused notebook called the Dev1, and it will ship with Pop! OS, which is a great distro in my opinion. I really like it. Here's the speculation part. The author admits this is speculation. The author of this article points out the System76 makes their own hardware. They, they don't just make Pop! OS. They make actual computers that they sell. So they are in competition with HP. So it seems a little bit weird that they would have teamed up. So the author goes on to speculate that this might be the sign of a potential acquisition. Now, he admits that that's pretty much just all speculation. He doesn't have any evidence of that. We'll have to wait and see. I personally don't think that's necessarily an indicator. Uh, I mean, maybe it could be. Maybe they're just, they reached some kind of arrangement for this one specific thing. Who knows? But in the meantime, I think this is good news for the Linux community. It means more Linux out there easily for people who want it. And the final FOSS story of the week, and actually the last story of the week, because we don't have any misfits, Techlore, right, the thing I manage, we have an app on FDroid. So Plexus is a project which pretty much is an open source project that crowdsources what apps do and don't work on de-googled phones. And we finally have an app for it. So you should go ahead and download it and try it out. Keep in mind that the long-term goal, because right now it doesn't do much outside, just show you the data. The long-term goal is for all app submissions to be done inside of the app. So you can actually submit all the apps that do and don't work on your phone directly inside the app. So that's coming soon. We're hard at work at bringing that as soon as we can. But as of right now, this is just a V1. We have an app. Submission's coming soon. Try it out. Enjoy it. All right, so like Henry said, we don't have any misfits this week. That means we're gonna roll right into our Q&A section. We're gonna start with a question from B. Lund, who said he's using Proton VPN. I have noticed that more and more sites deny access because of it. Any recommendation for how to circumvent that or do I need a different VPN? First of all, I will say in my experience, if you started using a VPN and you weren't before, you're definitely gonna hit a lot of captchas and stuff just because it's, it's new behavior. Once you start using a VPN a lot, I really don't run into a lot of captures anymore because I've been using a VPN religiously for several years. Having said that, I know Michael Basil made an entire episode about using VPNs. I believe it's episode 255 released in March. It says dedicated VPN IP addresses. He talks about basically like using a VPN and how a lot of services will block you. And he talks about some of the different ways you could get around that, like changing some of the settings, trying different servers. I actually did that earlier today when I went to Patreon to pull these questions. Patreon said I was blocked, so I literally just reconnected the VPN and then it was fine. So there are some workarounds. You don't necessarily have to give up on Proton or VPNs in general if you don't want to, but yeah, it's, it's definitely becoming an uphill battle. I just want to add to, this is totally dependent. This is not the VPN provider's fault. This is the services that are enacting blacklists that happen to hit VPN providers as well. So you can also raise your voice and contact customer support and be like, hey, I use a VPN and I have valid reasons to use it. And I'm also a valid customer of your service and I'm unable to access it. They probably won't fix it just because of you, but at least it lets them know that that's an issue you're dealing with. It's a constant cat and mouse game. So 
a lot of these VPN providers are actually constantly cycling servers so that they always have new servers that haven't been blocked yet. And then once they're blocked, they put out new servers. It's really a, an annoying situation. Something that just dawned on me, you said you're using Proton. If you're using the free plan, that could also be an issue. If you upgrade to something that's more paid, you might have better luck with that. The next question is from INTHC. They're thinking of getting the Calyx hotspot, but don't know what benefit would come for it compared to just getting a hotspot directly from a company. They were wondering if I had insights on this. First, I would just say, I recommend checking out on the TechLore side of things, we have a review of the newest Calyx hotspot, which breaks all of this down. It talks about how like, well, you're still having to tunnel your web traffic through a company, so it's not actually preventing that issue, but at least you can buy and order the hotspot without giving up any personal information. And at least you get to support a nonprofit organization in the process. So those for me are the two biggest things, but also it's unlimited internet, which I haven't been able to find as good of a deal from a company like Verizon, which always has some kind of cap. So for me, it's completely unlimited and it's like about 45, 50 bucks a month for me. For me, I don't have any home internet anymore. It's the only thing I use. So that's why I use it, but I'm not telling you to go buy it. And I would recommend checking out the Techler video on it. Our next question comes from Chris, who says, when talking to friends and relatives about privacy, I often feel like talking against a wall or people seeing me as a psycho. How do you guys explain this on a lower level to people who have no clue about privacy? This is the million dollar question. I see this pop up all the time. I see a lot of people ask it, not just me in general, but just people in general are asking on like Reddit and stuff. Short version, you, you really can't. I wrote a whole blog about this. The issue with a question like this is, you have to be able to identify what's important to people. I have one friend who has two daughters, very, very young. Like I think they're still in preschool. Stories about children's data breaches, like the Chicago story we covered earlier, those kind of things really worry him. So it's, it's really about identifying what's important to people when you're trying to convey this information. And you have to accept some people just don't care or they think they don't care and you're just not gonna be able to win everybody over. So you have to accept that number one. But yeah, my biggest tip would be just identify what matters to people. Password managers are a surprisingly easy sell because all you have to do is wait for somebody to be like, oh, I forgot my password and now I have to reset it. And that's your moment to be like, hey, you wanna never forget a password ever again? I got something for you. I'm gonna add my approach too. I have like a three-step approach here. The first one is what you said is like trying to find what clicks with them. It's like someone I know, they're always talking about uh, the lack of freedom in the world. And I'm like, well, hey, you can't have freedom if you're not able to control what you share with people, right? Like if if you have no ability to opt out or have any decision in the, in, in, in the process, you lose that. The second thing for me is tricking people. Like you said, with things like Bitwarden, don't even bring up the privacy aspects of things. Just be like, hey, this solves your problem. Just use that instead. I do that with Brave a lot. I'm like, hey, why do you use Chrome? Brave is the same thing. It just blocks ads out of the box and it's faster. I don't even mention- My partner does it with Signal. Yeah, same thing with Signal. Like, hey- She doesn't even bring up the privacy aspect. She's just like, oh, we can send unlimited attachment sizes and make group chats and all this stuff. And it's cross-platform. Like, hey, you want, you want FaceTime and iMessage, but on Android too and iOS? Let's use Signal. And the third thing, if neither of those work, I just accept that they don't care, but I'm still going to like double down on my own beliefs. I'm going to be like, okay, that's fine, but I still value these things. And that's why I take privacy seriously. So they know, and it still normalizes privacy for them because they see that like, oh, this person in my life cares about this. So at least it's important to some people. So worst case scenario, double down yourself. You don't have to convince people around you, but as long as you're um, standing in your own direction, I think people will follow you to some extent. And the last question we're going to cover is from Eddie. His question in essence is when do you personally think that you are taking things too far? 
What I mean by this is that at a certain point in your privacy journey, you can make decisions that make you seem like you've gone a bit nuts. There's a lot more to it, but that's kind of the gist of the question. Again, it kind of goes back to what I was saying with the last question. I like to just double down on why I do things. So if I'm at the bank and the bank is like, oh, hey, we just sent you a verification code. Do you mind reading it back to me? And it's taking me forever to pull it up because I have to like manually log into my, my email, which has 2FA and I have to go through my password manager and the whole time the person's like, waiting and I'm like, yeah, everything I set up is just really private and secure. So it just takes a while to do these things. And I think like really outlining why you do things a lot of times already answers it for people. But also this is kind of a personal thing for you. Like I might think that it's extreme for someone to be using tails for everything in their life, but for them, it's just kind of the norm. I draw the line at taking things too far when I start seeing negative consequences in the things that matter to me. So when you start hitting that point where like you're losing good friends, I mean, there's crappy friends that can go and good riddance, but when you're losing people you care about and when you're getting passed up for jobs because you don't have a Facebook, even your mental health, like if it's just you, if it's just wearing you down and you're losing sleep at night because you're worried about privacy, like it, it, I think that's the point at which you're going too far. And this is why threat modeling is so important. It's, it's important to know what's the minimum you have to do. And if you choose to go beyond that minimum, great, good for you. But you need to know if you can afford to give up that battle. Like, okay, this is not really that big of a deal. I can afford to not do this. When I start seeing negative consequences, like actual negative consequences, not just, oh, it takes me another two seconds to log into my email with 2FA. I don't care about that, but I lost a job opportunity because I don't have Facebook. Like, okay, that might be worth considering. One thing you said that like reminded me of something that I think I really wanna add to this. It's very normal, at least for me, and I think a lot of people, It's you don't know what to implement yet until you've tried all of it. My privacy journey was probably overall a lot more extreme than it is today believe it or not. Same. So I think it's very normal to go on the more extreme end of things. And then from there, having to decide what to keep and what to let go. And that way you can get closer to the more ideal place where you're supposed to be. And that was all of the news this week. We had a lot to go over. We talked about cars being hacked. We talked about the Department of Justice no longer prosecuting good hackers, which is an amazing win. India is not going in a good direction. I, yeesh. Lots of updates to the free and open source software world. So yeah, a mix of good and bad, but lots of news this week. Once again, we want to remind you, Monero is a good way to support us. We saw all of the tips we got last week. Thank you guys so much. Again, we don't know who it came from, but we saw it and we're thankful. And for those who do not use Monero or want to do something a little bit more ongoing, there's Patreon. And again, you get little perks. There's the uh, show notes, there's asking the questions, things like that. So be sure to check those out and we'll leave those links in the show notes. As always, thank you so much for listening to Surveillance Report. The final thing we want to ask of you, share the podcast around. Make sure you are subscribed and give a rating if you are listening on a platform that allows that. We are trying to reach as many people as possible with the message of privacy, and every little bit you do helps with that. So thank you again for listening, and we will see you next week.